Today on Let Me Be Frank, Bishop Caggiano talks about the lives of three church fathers whose work is very relevant to our society today. Those are St. Cyril of Alexandria, St. Athanasius, and St. Irenaeus. So keep your radio right here at 1350 AM or 103.9 FM, or keep us on your phone with the Veritas mobile app. The app is available at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or at veritascatholic.com. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad and the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Hey everybody, this is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I am Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure as always to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, how are you, my friend? Excellency, doing very well. I know you're exhausted from all your travels. Yeah, this traveling overnight from San Diego to here, back home, people, business people do it all the time. I don't know how they do it. I feel like a zombie. Well, you got the overnight travel and you have the, the time change, which actually affects, affects yes. me at yes. least a lot. Yes, going towards the West Coast, like when I arrived to San Diego, it was great. It's like the day you had like some cheat time, right? right. More time to do things. Coming back though, the, yeah. Anyway, I've done Gosh. it before, but I, and I've, I've not grown to like it, so it's never going to be something I would like. Anyway. Well, welcome back while you're here. <laughs> Amen. Amen. You, you know, and and uh, um, it, it's I, I'm excited uh, for a reason. Uh, this Sunday, as we talked about last week, is Corpus Christi. Um, mm-hmm. But the Eucharistic revival in the U.S. kicks off this Sunday. Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. At least it's the um, suggested date. We are not going to kick off our observance till the fall. Because my judgment was, at this time of the year, people are already beginning to vacation, right? I mean, True. particularly in Fairfield County. Yes. Our schools laid out somewhat early. And I thought to myself, why, why lose the golden opportunity? And then, of course, in the summer... People are away, so it's like you start something and you lose the momentum. Mm-hmm. So we will begin in the fall, and just to recollect everyone, because uh, we've spoken about this before, my goal is for the coming year is to engage leadership catechetically, evangelically, and spiritually. By leadership, I mean the clergy and the lay leadership of our parishes and schools. So not only to review what we believe the Eucharist to be and who we believe the Eucharist to be, but also to have an opportunity to provide real opportunity for prayer and reflection and adoration and, um, and to use, as we've spoken before, um, the power of beauty to, to speak in a way that you don't need words about the mystery of the Eucharist. And then, of course, we're going to begin, really begin a discussion about the celebration of the liturgy itself. And that's something with the, with the priests of the diocese that I would hope to be able to do over the year. And, yes. and how we can um, pray in a more um, transcendent and beautiful way. 
because that will help catechize people. And then the second year, which is 23 to 24, that will be when we would ask the parishes to engage in their programs of engaging everyone in the same way, catechetically, evangelically, spiritually. So we'll end with a large celebration on Corpus Christi, around Corpus Christi of 2024. And then from that gathering, our delegates to the National Congress will be blessed and commissioned and they will go in July, the following month, in 2024. But again, the key here is, forgive me for going on a bit, the key here is not just simply to teach people, but it's to reinvigorate parishes, to make them communities that truly worship in the mind of the church in a way that engages the mind, the heart, and the will. Because otherwise, you will give people a taste of what the church asks and not give them the opportunity to have that every Sunday. That would not be helpful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So wonderful to have so much focus on the Eucharist. Um, yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And, uh, and, and today, the, the main topic of today is we're going to go back to some of the church fathers. Yes, we are. And we're going to do that for a very specific reason. Um, not simply because they are, you know, the doctors of the church, they are the master teachers, if I could call it, about the faith. But if, you, if we could explore a bit the time in which they lived, it will give us both consolation as well as direction as we face our own challenges in our modern world. Because in the end, Steve, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. And we may look at the state of the church and say, my goodness gracious, it's a mess. Oh, my friends, a mess takes on a whole new definition in the patristic era. A whole new definition. And if I may, the three people I'd like to look at, if time permits, is St. Cyril of Alexandria, St. Athanasius, and St. Irenaeus. And they each live in a different century, so we're going backwards in time. And each of them has a special place in my heart, because St. Cyril, as you know, I wrote my doctorate on St. Cyril. And he, being among the saints, gives me hope, because... His personality was quite the personality, okay? Incited riots, bribed the emperor. <laughs> I mean, quite a man in many ways. <laughs> and then, of course, St. Athanasius was the second parish I was assigned to as a priest in Brooklyn. Tremendous, wonderful parish. That's how I, And in St. Athanasius' church, the fathers of the church, Latin and Greek fathers, are in the window, so it's beautiful. So that, and then, of course, St. Irenaeus is one of the first fathers I read when I was a seminarian. So, in, so I have a, in a sense, it's, it's, this is quite personal for me. Right? So shall we begin? Yes, please. I'm excited. Right. So, uh, in order to understand the fathers we need to understand the context of the world in which they lived. And that context is eerily similar to what we are experiencing in the contemporary church. So, for example, some of the things that are noteworthy is that there were different theological schools that emphasized different aspects of theology one could say very simply there was a theology from above or a theology from below. OK? 
okay? Whether you start with human spirit, experience with the humanity of Jesus, or you speak more of the transcendent and the divinity of the Lord, for example. It's just one very simple way of looking at the differences. You had the Alexandrian school and you had the Antiochian school. Right? Now, we also in the modern world have different approaches theologically. So this is not new. And they get resolved through the rough and tumble of life, through the fighting that happened, right? Sometimes literally fighting that happened, okay? In this era, philosophy made its presence known in a very particular way. And philosophy, as you know, is the handmaid to theology because not only does it help you to reason and help you to think, but philosophy gives you the categories of life and existence. It gives you the logic in which you could reason to things. But it also has limitations. And a lot of the controversies of the ancient church were based on the fact that people took their philosophical notions too far. But philosophical notions are meant to allow the scripture, which is our our, it's the revelation of the history of salvation in Jesus Christ, right? It's a definitive corpus of revelation, right? It allows us to take the scripture and explain it in contemporary ways that does not, does not compromise the truth, but helps elucidate the truth. That is, helps the truth to be understood in an even more profound way. And a lot of individuals fell off the wagon when they were not able to do that correctly. The other piece to this puzzle that's extremely important, all right, is that there were bishops who were rivals. Does that sound familiar? Rivals, publicly accusing each other, all right, of heresy, deposing each other. I mean, literally kicking each other out of office because of synods that they would call, courting the emperor who was as fickle as the day is long. And there were many of the emperors, right? So. When Constantine died, he had three sons. You know, it was like four ways to Tuesday, depending on what they decided and who they listened to and what seemed to be... Because they were... I mean, I should say this. Were they believers or not? I hope they were believers. But uh, we're not talking converted people on fire for the faith, right? So so there were rivalries. And to see some of this, which we're not going to go into, but if, if those who are listening ever picked up, for example, a history of the church, and you read, for example, the five exiles in Athanasius and how all of that was orchestrated, I mean, it is sobering to see how the emperors interfered. Remember, the emperors called the councils, not the pope. Precisely, one would say, that he imagined himself as the guardian of the faith. He wanted to be the keeper of the peace. But he was also using the church and bishops for his political ends. And a person like Cyril knew that and actually, in some ways, kind of tried to cross-manipulate <laughs> to get his position across. Right? So politics is has always been a a uh, i'm going to say a mortal temptation okay. the other piece to this puzzle is to kind of give it the larger context is questions in those a in those years in those centuries literally took centuries to settle 
right? So if you consider St. Paul died in the early 60s, and you have the Council of Chalcedon in 451, right? So that's 400 years to get a definition that we, on Sunday, we repeat as if half the time most people would just say it because we've memorized it. But the blood, sweat, and tears, the imprisonments, the, the sufferings, the martyrdoms, the discussions, the arguments, the fighting that happened to get to that symbol, as we call it, the creed, can't be underestimated. Now, my hope is that if there are those who are listening are very disconcerted what seems to be disagreement, seems to be upheaval in some sense, seems to be bishops that are not necessarily always on the same page. My friends, the bottom line is that has been a perennial part of the life of the church from the apostles. <laughs> so my point is don't be discouraged. Don't be passive either, but don't be discouraged. Don't be disillusioned because the Holy Spirit's in charge. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. We will always come back to consensus around the truth. Right? So in the end, to understand St. Cyril, all right, there are some things that we have to talk about. First and foremost, running from St. Cyril backwards all the way to St. Irenaeus and even earlier, there are two basic issues that kind of animated a lot of the religious discussion. The first is the notion of the Trinity and how can three be one? And to use philosophical concepts to try to help explain what that could mean. How could it possibly be that you have God the Father in heaven, God the Son on earth, God the Holy Spirit who is the love between them, who also dwells in our hearts and still have one God? And the second is Christology. And the issue with Christology is if you and I believe that the second person of the Blessed Trinity took on a human life, what does that mean? How is that possible and God still to be God? Right? How is it possible that this God, and, and besides how is it possible, why was it needed? So in the end, this question of a savior, redemption, okay, what Irenaeus will call the recapitulation, why was that needed? How was it affected? Why did God the Son need to take a human life? What difference did it make that he took a human life? How much of a human life did he take? All of those questions are what they wrestled with. And if you sit back and just think about it, so Jesus was truly human, but he was also truly God. So when Jesus as a little child, what did Jesus know and what did he not know? As God, he knew everything. But as a human child, he would not have known everything. He would have grown in his knowledge. How do you hold those two things together? Right? And the body, the, and this is why, in my mind, it's extremely, the body was the key lynch. It was the lynch point 
of all the discussion. How real was his body? How real was his human life? Did Jesus actually live a human life like ours? And St. Paul says, yes, in all things but sin. And what the consensus was is that it's precisely by taking on human flesh, a human life, that human flesh is redeemed. Right? So, in some sense, why is that important today? Because I'm guessing, I'm not really guessing, I'm being polite. There are a number of Christians, perhaps more than we care to admit to, who do not believe that Jesus is a Savior or the Savior. So when you talk about the Eucharist, the Eucharist, we have spoken many times together about it is the food, the celestial food to eternal life, precisely because it is linked with the one unrepeatable act of salvation in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it's a snack. So in the end, the great turmoil in the early church was to hold on to that fundamental belief that Jesus came not to give us a philosophy of life. He gave us, he came to give us salvation from sin and death. Right? And that's still, in the contemporary world, people are struggling with that, even those who claim to be Christian. Mm -hmm. The other thing to just note, before we get into the three of them, there was a lot of controversy, a lot of controversy, when the creed was retranslated into, into, this, into the latest version in English. And remember the word that was added to the creed? Consubstantial. Right? Homoousios. That word caused much pain and suffering to Athanasius and so many others who violently rejected the Arian approach to faith. Literally violently. <laughs> yeah, five times in exile. Five times in prison. Right? Okay. So, so I think there's lessons to be learned just for our contemporary world. That's why I think this would be interesting just for us to do and kind of break open. Yes. Okay? All right. Are you less, are you more encouraged? Yes. <laughs> That's the goal. All right. So St. Cyril. St. Cyril, interesting man. Right? Um... St. Cyril, he is famous for the Council of Ephesus, taking on the Patriarch of Constantinople, who was his rival. Okay, remember, Constantinople, there were three sees, all right? And Alexandria was one, Constantinople was another, okay? And Antioch was the third. And in the end, the Antiochian school was very much in Constantinople. So there was a rivalry of seas and a rivalry of theology. And he was the one who defended what we spoke about maybe a couple of years ago, what we take for granted, calling Mary the mother of God. Right? But because... If Jesus is not God, then we are cooked. <laughs> right? But put real simply. I'll give it to you in Brooklynese. We're, we're, we're cooked. Right? 
in which case we're not saved. Right. right. Okay. So he was Egyptian. He was born in 376. I already alluded to the fact he had a difficult personality, but difficult in the sense of he was a zealot. He was zealous for his what he held. And therefore, there were some things that you and I would say, my goodness, why would you do that? But in his mind, it was all for the cause of defending the Orthodox faith. So the fact that he incited riots, <laughs> that he expelled the Jews, right? Because in Alexandria, there were three groups, Christians, Jews, and pagans. And in some of this rioting and some of this political intrigue, in order to get back at the prefect, all right, and even indirectly to the emperor, he took a large portion of the Jewish community. Now we look at that and we say, my goodness gracious, how could you possibly do that? <laughs> but again, in that age, it was all about arriving, it's defending the truth, right? No matter what the cost was. He was also extremely well educated, and his and his uncle was Theophilus. And he was the patriarch of Alexandria, and when he he grew older, had moved so that Cyril would become a successor. So actually, uncle passed the sea on to his nephew. Could you imagine doing that in the 21st century? Yikes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they were. I mean, there was the uh, the, uh, the local prelate, you know, the the local official, Orestius and and the, the debates there, and the fighting there, and the expulsion of the Jews happened, right, to try to undermine his authority. There was a woman who was very much a philosophical force in the age at the time, particularly in Alexandria. Her name was Hypatia, and she was murdered by a, by a, 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 by a mob that was incited. Right? So, I, I tell you all this because, again, we look at the frailty of our leadership, whether it's in our in our diocese, we look at it on the global level, we look on it in our parish level, and none of what happened in the past excuses it. But again, it's not new. Okay. So, Nestorius, Antiochian theology, held that Mary could only be called the mother of Christ, but in the end. The real issue for Nestorius is that he could not understand how if Jesus all right, were truly God, how was it possible for that God to suffer even with his union in the flesh? So he spoke of, Christ, he spoke of the Lord as Christ, the Anointed One. Right, but not directly as God. Now, there are people who claim that his theology was much more nuanced, and, and that could very well be. But Cyril heard it in a certain way, and Cyril was the one who then said, no, 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 no. Right? In the end, Mary is the mother of God because God in, in time and space had a birth in Jesus. And that's precisely why she is the mother of God. So in the end, this whole question of the hypostatic union is Cyril's affirmation. All right? It's almost if 
the hypostatic union in Christ is almost a derivative of what the fathers had concluded about the Trinity, and that's where we talk about consubstantial, right? So, in the Trinity, there is literally one divine essence or being. We call it usia. And there are three divine persons who share that one usia, but they have, in many ways, they are, for lack of a better word, subsistences, if that's the word to be used, right? That they are, they're not different modalities of God. They are not different pieces of God. They are all fully God. God the Father is fully God. God the Son is fully God. God the Holy Spirit is fully God. Right? We speak of the processions of the Holy of of the Trinity, but in the end, there is only one God in this usia, and that may sound like it's limping, but in fact, even philosophy of the time is not completely. It's not completely adequate to explain to explain the mystery of what's at hand. But what's key is that there is one usia. Okay. So when we say that we are consubstantial, so substantia and usia are the same thing. So he has one usia, one being. So we're affirming in the creed that he's truly God. That's why that word means it's a big deal. So for Cyril, the person of Jesus is divine. And with both a divine and human nature. So now I'm going to ask you another question. How many Christians do you know have ever given thought that Jesus is in fact a divine person, not a human person? Yeah, it's... Uh, I, I, I don't think many people spend enough time thinking about mm -hmm. that or meditating on what that might mean. Right. And to say that Jesus is a, is, is a divine person, not a human person, does not mean that Jesus is not fully human. He is. He has, the, uh, he has our nature, a human nature. Right? So Jesus had a human soul. Right? He had a human body that was real, that could suffer. But it was God's human soul. It was God's human, human body. Therefore, it became the instrument of salvation. Of what? Of the full human person. Not just his soul, but his body. That's the link to the Eucharist that we've talked about before. So, in some sense, Cyril highlights for us, I think, a, a, a guidepost in the contemporary world. And we have to not simply assent to but truly come to understand as best we can what does it mean to say that Jesus is true God and true man. Divine person with the divine nature and the human nature. And consubstantial with the Father, for there is only one God. For our salvation rests on this. And Cyril was so very much convicted that there was nothing that was going to stop them to make sure that the orthodox faith prevailed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
Uh, can we? Is this a good time for a break, Excellency? Oh yeah, absolutely. Great. Okay, so we'll just we'll take a quick break. Uh, I mean, it's so important to learn about these fathers of the faith and where you know aspects of the creed come from. And people died over words in the creed, so we shouldn't take it for granted and just kind of robotically say it during mass. Um, but okay, so this is let me be frank on the Veritas Catholic Network with Bishop Frank Caggiano, and we're gonna be right back. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. So, uh, Excellency, you just told us about Cyril of Alexandria and about the word consubstantial, which was fought over so vigorously by both sides and is now in the creed that we say. And, um, and another staunch defender who almost lost his life several times over this was um, St. Athanasius. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And Athanasius lived the century before, and Cyril praised Athanasius. And we've spoken about Athanasius in an earlier podcast, I think maybe a few years ago. And I raise him because there's another contemporary issue here with Athanasius that we, are, we, we need to, to, to kind of take a step back and kind of reflect on, right? Well, and it is, my life is all about me, Bishop Barron. Why do I say that? All right, some background about Athanasius and then I will answer that question. First, he was bishop for 45 years exiled five times, fought Arius in the midst of political intrigue, right, for all of those years. His personal life, I mean, from what we can understand, he was fairly well educated. He did not know Hebrew, he knew Greek. The only version of the scripture he really was acquainted with was the Septuagint. But as the bishop, all right, or the patriarch really of of Alexandria, he followed Bishop Alexander of Alexandria, 
he was his secretary at the Council of Nicaea, and the Council of Nicaea was the one that really was the the um, the baseline that about what we believe about the Lord Jesus, okay, that Arius could not accept. So now we talked about consubstantial. So its roots go all the way to Athanasius, right? Cyril's applying it first to to the mother of God and then in in this in this notion that there's a hypostatic union, right? Somehow there's got to be a union with with humanity, but that still remains divine, right? So for Athanasius it it's logical, philosophically logical to draw a distinction between the Son and the Father that does not have them as equals. Even when we speak of begotten, right? Begotten presumes that there is a prior force, reality, substance, whatever you want to call it, that gives the begottenness, that gives forth life. So, that's human logic. That's philosophical logic. That's not the witness of the scriptures. That's not orthodox faith, as we finally were articulating it. But Arius insisted. Right? So Arius insisted in a, what we're going to call like a subordinationist Christology. Right? That Christ was the divine son, but he was made, not begotten. Okay. And now you notice the difference in the creed. He is begotten, not made. That is our refutation of Arius. Yes. Because if he's made, he's less than the Father. So he's not consubstantial with the Father. He does not share the same Usia. So he becomes an agent, right? Of of what I suppose the, the the offer of salvation, but the floor in it is, if he's not fully God, who, who, who has the authority and power to save but God? Right? So, what I find fascinating here is, in the modern world, Bishop Barron, my life is all about me. We've spoken many times about the relativistic approach to the truth. Some of that is powered by our, our ability to think and to reason and in some sense to even manipulate the things around us. But there has to be a basic surrender to the revelation that came to us from the apostles, right? Which is forever enshrined in the word of God through the, through the power of inspiration. And therefore, in a sense, when the soldier says, right, um, this truly was the Son of God and Jesus' crucifixion, and when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, he is refuting what would be considered the normal logical approach, right, to trying to make revelation fit us, to fit our thinking to fit our presumptions, right? So, in many ways, Athanasius 
on a personality level is very different from St. Cyril. And his terminology is not always precise. But when you read it in its totality, then it's obvious that Athanasius held this clear understanding that there isn't a subordination of the Son to the Father. He is homoousios. He is one in substance with the Father. As is the Holy Spirit one in substance with the Father and the Son. It was when you got to Cyril that there was the philosophical construct that held it all together. So again, we live in a time, do we not, when people will use their philosophical categories, they will use their, perhaps their logical premises, they will use themselves as the standard to say that this is what makes sense to me, and I'm going to repeat it till the day I die. If it makes sense to you, it's lovely. But that doesn't mean it's the objective truth. It doesn't mean it's revealed truth. And that's precisely what we have here with, with Athanasius. So, begotten, not made, is Arius. And we say it every Sunday. So now let me ask you, how many subordinists are there in Christians that they actually consider in their imagination, in their prayer, in their understanding theologically, that the Son is like one step less than the Father. And that's not orthodox faith. Right? Yeah, I think... I think mm-hmm. Go ahead. Go no, no, ahead. please. No, no, I was just going to say, I think it's... Because it's so difficult for us to understand, because we say that He's the Son... And for humans, a son follows. Implies, yes. Yeah. All right. 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 Exactly. So the procession is in time, and therefore right. you there's an antecedent, which you presume is greater. But in fact, they are eternal. So the processions are not in time; they are eternal. And again, you think about it long enough, you'll get a headache. <laughs> That's right. But again, these, these controversies, these, these erroneous positions exist in spades in the modern world. Yeah. They do. Yeah. Yeah, they do. So we go back to the Eucharist. Let's go back to the Eucharist. So if, if the Son who, um, through grace transform bread and wine into his body and blood. Well, whose body and blood is that? Is that truly God made man? Or something less than that? And then you could begin to see how you could veer off into this idea of it being a symbol or a reminder or just simply a memorial or it's an historic reenactment. But that's God made man there in his death and resurrection i mean if you think about it it's 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 beyond awesome it's it's it it almost renders you speechless is but that arises from this the one thing i want to say before we leave saint athanasius is i always admired saint athanasius because he was a man of deep faith he was also a man of deep integrity and unlike my my dear friend saint Cyril. 
didn't involve in a lot of the, the machinations and, you know, he, he had a very different character. And there's that famous story, all right, when the Bishop of Alexandria um, spied out of his window a number of boys at the beach and not realizing what they were doing, got a bit closer and they were, if you were, for lack of a better word, they were imitating the sacrament of baptism over people who are not Christian. That is, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, pouring water over their heads. And he intervened and he said, uh, boys, you need to stop that because the formula is valid and the sacrament is valid and these people are not prepared. Mm. And one of those boys was Athanasius, hmm. as a little boy. So he invited them to consider sacred orders, and that began the, the trajectory of Athanasius's life. Wow. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love yes. it. I love it. Okay. So, so then, all right, so then let me ask you about uh, St. Irenaeus, who has a direct line to the apostles himself. Yes, St. John. Yeah. Right. St. John the Apostle, right? He's one of the, the last who had a direct knowledge or interaction or encounter with the Apostles. Uh -huh. Now, Irenaeus is extremely important because, again, he's the century before. So the church is being persecuted and the heresies of the time are exactly the heresies we see in, in our 21st century which is docetism and Gnosticism. So let's talk about his achievements first. Irenaeus is the first of the fathers to clearly say that the source, the three pillars of orthodoxy, of orthodox truth are scripture, tradition, and the apostolic successors, which is what we hold now almost 1850 years later. Yeah. He was very much influenced by St. Paul in the writings of St. Paul and this notion of the new Adam. And the Mary, of course, is the new Eve. And he has this notion of salvation, again, it all is rooted in this question of, of recapitulation. Right? That is, everything gets summed up in Christ, and that it was foreseen that there would be an incarnation even before the fall, right? But the fall had been foreseen anyway, right? From the beginning of, of all creation. And therefore, it was through the obedience of Christ to the cross and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross that brings the new Adam to begin this, this, this process of redemption for those right, who believe and enter into grace. Right? And the unity of God is also very much in Irenaeus' mind, right? extremely so. The unity of, of, of God, again, because he's, he is foreshadowing Athanasius, who is then foreshadowing Cyril, as he thinks through these questions of salvation and what is the relationship of Christ right, to his believers. But the point is this, docetism and Gnosticism, the division of the material and spiritual world, is rooting a lot of the modern imagination. 
that is the one of the root causes of the gender identity controversy in the modern world. It's a root cause to a lot of of the practice of the modern world to see your body as your possession and therefore no one should tell me what to do with my body. Sound familiar? Yes, unfortunately, yes. Right. This goes all the way back to Irenaeus. Right? And again, to remind us, the material world for the Gnostics was, uh, was evil. The purpose of life is to escape it and to become purely spiritual. You did that by the gnosis, the knowledge that would allow you to go from the material, all right, to what I'm going to call an in-between state, to ultimately being spiritual. And if you don't make it to the spiritual, the rest is lost. Like if you're just material in the sense of you don't have this knowledge, you, you, you revel in the material world, you eventually go back to the material world. Like that's, that's your destiny. And for those who have a glimpse, who believe, but but still don't aspire to that, to the gnosis, the gnosis, the knowledge, right, of the inner secrets, that the material world is evil, you have to get rid of it, you, you need to become a, a, a child of, of the spirit, then you kind of like go in what I would consider to be almost like a limbo, maybe an early version of a, an understanding of a purgatory that never gets you to heaven. Like a whole almost like Hades would have been in, in Greek mythology. So I raise Irenaeus because again, if you were to draw a line between them all, right, Irenaeus insists, okay, that the material is good, even though it's fallen, and the material is an essential part of who we are. And then Christ, the Son of God, coming into the world, took on a material life so that material world could be redeemed, not escaped, but redeemed. Then, of course, Athanasius, as we talked about, right? Consubstantial with the Father, Nicaea. But he's still God. So you have the two pieces. And then Cyril comes and says, no, there's a hypostatic union here because Mary is the mother of God divine person with two natures but all along the material world and the body the human body is a central piece to this so now why do we live in a world where there are so many Christians who do not it's almost like we've gone back they do not see the value dignity beauty of the body as an essential part of who they are that is going to be redeemed so you look back at Irenaeus, you read it because it's not ancient history. Those insights are going to help us in the 21st century answer those same questions. Right? The more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's, you know, it's it's just as <laughs> we've been we've been doing this show for a couple of years now, Excellency, and from since the very beginning, you've been saying. You know, there was the uh, early Christians in the apostolic age, and then we came into Christendom where society, even if they weren't expressly Christian, they approached life and morals through a, a Christian perspective with, mm -hmm. you know, similar foundational 
um, philosophies uh, and approaches. And now we've abandoned that and we're back in the apostolic age, which is why these three fathers of the church are so relevant today, as you're saying. Right. They, they have pieces to the solution, to the problems that are plaguing not only contemporary society, but have infiltrated in the life of the church. So, if I may put it this way, it is the role of the material in salvation. It's the unity of Christ as a divine person. It's the agency of salvation, right, and redemption for the forgiveness of our sins and the redemption of our bodies, right? It's recapturing that for Christians who see Jesus as a philosopher or a person who gives away just a simple way of life. Or says, well, he's one of the ways by which one can be saved. And scripture says there is by no other name that any person can be saved. Because he is God. I can't get any more blunt. (laughs) (laughs) But but, but again, we end with this whole question in the moral realm for us. And again, the fathers, all this disagreement we have among bishops, which is very unfortunate in many ways, but it's there, but it was there before. Yeah. Right? Right. So if this was the title for this podcast, it would be Have Hope, People. Have Hope. That's the title. I love it. All the elements are there. The history is there. The experience is there. Right? Our obligation as Christians is to reflect on what we believe and allow it to infiltrate our minds, our hearts, and our wills. That is our obligation as disciples of Jesus Christ. Yes. Yeah. I, I haven't studied these three men the way you have, Excellency. I, I read about them a little bit in a couple books by a guy named Rod Bennett. Um, he wrote a book called Four Witnesses that he outlines four early fathers and then also um, a book called The Apostasy That Wasn't that's all about Athanasius, which was a fun story. Um, besides, you know, learning. But, yeah, you're right, because in Athanasius' story alone, the people who were sending people to kill him were other bishops. Exactly. <laughs> Let's hope we don't get to that, please. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but it's just, it's our job to preach the truth uh, in the midst without of all of it. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And even, if, if I may get just a little bit controversial here, even the whole question of politicians whether they receive Holy Communion or not, all right? And you see the varying opinions that bishops have about it. But the truth of the matter is, the infiltration of politics and politicians in the life of the church has been there from the beginning, particularly yes. in the patristic era. Yeah. Okay. And so, we still got the, and we still got here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're still around. We're still have, around. Have hope. So before we go into the break, Excellency, give us a, a solid, you know, message of, of hope uh, through, through these three uh, fathers. I think if there was one refrain that they would have sung through the ages, one reinforcing the other, is that it's God's church. Not theirs, not yours, not mine. It's God's church. And we may stumble... We may disagree, we may fight. We may actually espouse positions that would have to change, right, as individuals, right? 
But the truth is, the truth is a person, Jesus Christ. The living, divine person of Jesus Christ. Revelation is an event, and through the scriptures, that is its definitive witness, through the tradition, that it's living echo, and through the stewardship of the bishops, who are frail, sometimes ornery, problematic sometimes. They're you mean they're human? <laughs> imagine. Can you imagine? But it, but it prevails. It's, Christ, it's Christ's church. Yes. Amen. Okay, so this is Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. We'll be back after the break with a listener question. Hey, it's Matt from Restless on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Each week on Restless, we young adults restlessly seek the face of Christ in today's crazy and mixed up world. Join us each Friday at noon on 1350 AM, 103.9 FM, the Veritas app, or wherever you get your shows. Hope to see you there. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, um, here's the question that came in this week. Bishop Frank, I'm planning my wedding and I have two questions for you. Are destination weddings allowed like on a beach or do we have to get married in a church building? Also, any advice on being a great husband and hopefully one day a father? Well, the first question has to be a nuance because I understand that destination wedding is a, a, a wedding that takes place at a particular locale that may not be your home, right? So you go to wherever you go. Destination weddings are allowed, but where in the destination is the question. So to if you're going to the Bahamas in a church, a Catholic church, as two Catholics, with the bride permissions, that's more than permissible. But to get married on the beach, that's much more problematic because the, the, the presumption is two Catholics are going to be married by a Catholic priest in a Catholic ceremony, right, um, with or without the celebration of Mass in a Catholic church. Now, bishops have made exceptions, certainly in COVID, and there are bishops who do allow weddings between two Catholics to be in places other than a Catholic church because the law allows the bishop to make the to give a dispensation. So it's not preferred. It's not what's presumed. But in fact, it can be done if the bishop of the locale you're traveling to will allow for it. Mm -hmm. uh, as for the second, the advice of being a good husband and father, I would just want to say, I applaud the question because we live in, an, in a time when so much attention is being given to the day of marriage and precious little thought is given to the life of marriage. <laughs> yes. Yep. Right? And, I mean, I think, Steve, you could weigh in on this question better than I because you are a father and a husband. I mean, I have some ideas. Do you have any thoughts? <laughs> you know... <laughs> So I actually think about this all the time. Um, I would say uh, um, about being a husband, for me, I pray every day that one day when I'm gone, Rula can look back on our marriage and that she can pray a prayer of thanks to God for me. Um, that 
you know, that I've shown her some small glimpse of God's love in a way, in the way that I treated her and I talked to her and I sacrificed mm -hmm. for her. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I know I mess up and I blow it every day, but that's what I pray for, that she'll have seen a reflection of God's love in her life through me, her husband. Um, and and, and then I guess, I guess for a father, it's similar, you know, as a father, your children, I think, should look at you and be able to see the fatherhood, the love, the sacrifice, the mercy of the father. Um, and so because of what they see in you, your children should learn that God is, you know, compassionate, faithful, merciful. Um, oh, uh, and one thing that, um, see, I say this stuff and I know I blow it all the time. So I'm, anybody who knows me is going to be like, what? That guy saying that? But we, we all have to discipline our kids. I think it's important that we also keep this in mind. Um, is correction the only thing they hear from you? Uh, we need to be intentional about also letting our children hear from us the good in them. You know, like, I see this in you and I love it. You know, stuff is like Is this that. guy actually saying that? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> see, I told you. <laughs> no, but, but, but it's very wise. Even St. Paul says, don't nag your children, right? You can't always discipline them. But I guess this would be my insight from my celibate state of life. Um, there is no more sacred and privileged opportunity to help children realize that God loves them than through their parents. Yes. So to be a good father is to make God's love real for a son or daughter. Never have them ever question their worth or their worthiness, even when they botch up things really big time. Yeah. And I would think the same could be true for a spouse, for a wife, right? Yeah. To have and to hold for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and health, till death do us part. Right. Yeah, man, if, if Rula didn't have mercy on me for all the times I screw up, I'd been long gone, long ago. We should have her come on the show. I think <laughs> no, that'd be no, a no, great no. episode. Yes, yes, I think that'd be a great episode. Uh, anyway, if you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in to us on social media. You can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and so is Veritas Catholic Network. And as always, a big thank you to Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Excellency, you know what? I, um, happy Father's Day. <laughs> oh, and the same to you, my friend. Happy Thank Father's you. Day. Yes. Thank you. Absolutely. Are you doing anything special? Uh, uh, coaching soccer. <laughs> Oh, good for you. But I oh, love nice. that. I love that. And and I also just want to take a quick moment just to wish my dad a happy Father's Day. He listens every week. So. Oh, God bless him. Me too. <laughs> I love him. And all the fathers who are listening. Fathers, grandfathers, godfathers, foster fathers. Yes. Uh, many And spiritual fathers. Yes. Many blessings. Many blessings to, yes. uh, to everyone. And, and would you give us an official blessing, Excellency? Yes, of course. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we ask that through the intercession of St. Irenaeus, St. Athanasius, St. Cyril of Alexandria, 
and all the holy men and women of every age and place. Through their intercession, grant us a share in your Holy Spirit, that we may imitate their courage, their fidelity, and their love. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come upon us and remain with us forever. Amen. Amen. All right, my friend, I'll see you next week. Thanks, Excellency. See ya. Okay.